Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, this is Howard Smith, and I'll be your host along with Ronaldo Brutico for today's program, New Business Paradigms, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society. I think, as you all know, Ronaldo is the president of the World Business Academy, and I'm a member of the board of directors of the Academy, as well as a wealth advisor and estate planning consultant with Morgan Stanley Smith Barney. I uh, first want to comment that our viewer and readership has increased since last year uh, up tenfold. Uh, that's a thousand percent increase. And we'd like to thank you and all of our viewers and listeners for sharing this with their friends and passing the word along. Um, the more of you who listen, the easier it is for us to continue programming these monthly sessions with you. So again, on behalf of Ronaldo and myself, I'd like to thank you all for tuning in. During today's program, Ronaldo will be covering two major topics, as usual, along with our lightning round. Again, as always, we will include questions and comments from you, our audience. We already, again, have several questions in the queue that we've received by email. So if you'd like to place a question, please dial into us at area code 347-989-8946 and hit the number one key. Um, also, if you'd like to email questions into us in the future, um, on a temporary basis, we have a new email for that, and that is Jordana at worldbusiness.org. And Jordana is spelled J-O-R-D-A-N-A at worldbusiness, one word, dot org. Now, um, again, one of these purposes, one of the purposes of this monthly call is to present you, our members and listeners, with concrete, actionable ideas. Today, we're going to be discussing the impact of the lame duck Congress and the various pieces of legislation that they did pass in December. Also, the appointment of businessman Bill Daly to be the new White House Chief of Staff and a novel new small business incentive that was tucked away in that recent tax bill that President Obama did sign into law. After the first segment, we will do our expanded lightning round, usually a series of quick economic insights and comments on major asset classes such as bonds, the dollar, energy, and real estate. This month, we're going to emphasize and look at the recent rise in prices for food, oil, and other commodities, as well as our past predictions for them and recent buys that we've done here um, at the Academy. At this point, moment, let me introduce Ronaldo. And again, Ronaldo, one of the purposes of these monthly calls is to present to our members concrete actionable ideas that reflect the philosophy of the World Business Academy and our desire to bring socially conscious practices on business and society. Again, can you expand upon this for our audience and explain exactly what this means or entails? Thank you, Howard, and uh, good morning to everyone. Uh, I just wanted to ex- express my also my appreciation uh, that, that we've had a thousand percent increase just through word of mouth in the, the listenership of the show, and and that incentivizes us to reach further, do more, and provide you with more choices and, and insights. So thank you very much, and please do pass this show along to your friends, your relatives, everybody who you think might benefit, which is just about everybody. <laughs> Um, first of all, I, my first comment I want to make today uh, is directly related to the, to the assassinations in, in, in Tucson, Arizona. And I'm going to do this very briefly. I'm going to note what a tragedy it was. I am not going to dwell on the facts, the circumstances, or whether Congresswoman Giffords, who we, of course, all wish will be fully recovered, I'm not going to dwell for 24 to 48 hours on whether she raised her arm, winked, or um, is capable today of, of being off a ventilator, all of which is true. Because our, our news media tends to do this ad nauseum and to our detriment. Let me give you a specific example, and you'll see why I'm bringing it up today. 
I was watching a, a live press conference from the Oval Office about three days ago. It was President Obama and President Nicolas Sarkozy of France. So two leaders of two of the largest countries in the world, the most economically vibrant, dynamic countries, the ones who, when they agree, these leaders set the tone for what happens to us and affects us in every aspect of our lives in society and in our economic well-being individually and collectively. Uh, after the obligatory uh, acknowledgement that President Sarkozy gave to the, um, to the terrible tragedy and then referenced a similar tragedy of two young men uh, killed in his country, uh, the news media switched immediately off and went back to a mundane, silly, foolish, ghoulish death bedside watch of Gabby Giffords and an endless stream, as you know, that the media has been doing of coverage, which really doesn't serve to elevate the conversation, enlighten anyone, frankly, or produce forward momentum. Now, why am I rigging this up? Because when the president of France is sitting with the president of the United States and is about to make a substantive statement about two days of talks that affect the global community, particularly because Sarkozy is about to inherit the presidency of two major global bodies for the next six months to a year, it's important that we listen to what he says. That's news. A bedside watch of Gabby Giffords, unless something is news, and then it can be done very briefly, is not something that needs to be consuming 24 hours a day, seven days a week, our news cycle. News has got to start being news and stop being gossip. And that's what you're seeing on television over and over, and radio. Why am I bringing this up? I thought the speech that the president gave at the, uh, at the uh, ceremony yesterday was brilliant. If you haven't seen it, I urge you to go online and look it up. It was exactly what you would hope the President of the United States would say in terrible times like this. But why am I bringing up this topic in conjunction with our conversation, which is about economic matters and about the effect of business and society? The reason I'm doing it is because you as an individual listener absolutely must understand at your core of being that you will not get the information you need listening or watching, watching CNN or, frankly, I'm sorry to say MSNBC, you won't get, what, or CBS or NBC or ABC, you will not get the information you need to actually navigate through the most challenging economic times you will ever face in your life, which is what we're going through right now, hopefully the most challenging, uh, are right now, because the only way we get more challenging than this is if we hit the wall, which we're still capable of doing, although we've done a great job of averting that, and we'll be addressing that in a moment in the lame duck session comments. But I want you to just stop and think for a moment. This is what this show does for you. I'm trying to help you, Howard's helping me help you, give you context within which to understand information that is vital to your well-being, that of your family, your friends, and your society. Because we are looking at the issues of commerce and society, which are overriding almost all the other aspects of our lives, whether we see that in terms of unemployment, whether we see that in terms of uh, uh, personal debt, whether we see that in terms of collective debt, collective debt, we as a society, and I mean particularly the United States of America, absolutely must start thinking about things that matter and stop wasting so much of our productive time listening to gossip. I heard someone say yesterday in a very interesting call with a lot of very bright people that were on the phone globally uh, in a group I belong to called the Evolutionary Leaders, and I heard this comment made, which was, you know, it's really time for the United for, for the us to stop and look at how dysfunctional our society has become. And what I was interested in is that person speaking was thinking about the world. But the truth is, and people in the United States need to know this, the U.S. right now is probably one of the most dysfunctional parts of the world. It's not that they're doing so bad in many other places, by the way. 
So there's lots of good stories happening about things that are actually going well in other parts of the world. In fact, in an impartial survey that was done not long ago by the Pew Research Center, they noted that the number of good stories being carried today is less than the number of good stories three years ago in the U.S. and outside because the media chooses not to carry them. For example, most people wouldn't know there was less crime in 2010 than there was in 2009, serious crime, aggravated crime. But there was. But if you looked at the headlines, you wouldn't know that. So what we Ronaldo, really need... Let me interrupt for a second. I just want to add, too, that a lot of people will say, oh, I don't want to check the general media. I want to check, for example, the business news. And the early part of my career, I spent 15 years working in television. And one of the things you learn in that industry is that the news is less concerned, and the business news is just as guilty of this, uh, the CNBCs of, of the world as well, the Fox Business Channel, even the Wall Street Journal, that their primary goal and function is to sell advertising, and that what they attempt to do in the process of presenting their news is also addict you to the next story, whatever that is, and that each story they present is less designed to be informational to you and, and useful to you than it is designed to hook you to watch the next view and the counter view and the counter view. And in this way, a lot of stories which really are political stories or, or political viewpoints get presented as actual fact and information. And it's very distorting and very distracting when your news source is not concerned about preventing you accurate in, presenting you accurate information, um, but rather about presenting to you information that's going to keep you addicted to watching them. There's a big difference there. Okay, I think that's perfect. It's going to be a great segue, Howard, because let me just explain it this way. The, 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 the prototype or the, the, the person that the, the, the movie Citizen Kane was patterned after was a man named William Randolph Hearst, the famous publisher. And Hearst had this great line, which was, if it bleeds, it leads, meaning if I can grip you by your guts because I can give you a line that somebody bled or shot or whatever, that'll sell more papers as a lead headline than um, man provides um, – million-dollar check to a homeless person in, in park. In other words, we don't tend to look at media at the way to hook people by telling them good news. We tell them what we think will hook them, which is more like gossip. And now let's combine those two thoughts with what you said about the business media, because they're just as guilty of it as the rest of them. So if you read the headlines about soaring crop shortages, for example, you wouldn't know what to do with that headline. And if you read the articles, as we do in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere and, and, and Bloomberg, you would misinterpret what that means, and you might make the wrong decision. Now, on this show a month ago, we told people that, but we told them in a thoughtful way. We said, you know, here's what's going on with crop prices. Here's why it's going on. We listed several factors. I'll just repeat them briefly for people. Number one, climate change is radically affecting the price of crops. The, the, what happened in Russia alone drove up the price of wheat 43% last year. Um, and it's every single grain commodity, by the way, is up, as well as is, 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 is the price of oil. I want to come back to that in a second because Howard's got a theory which has been proven to be correct again this year about oil. So the, the idea is it's not enough to say crop prices are soaring, oh, my God. Um, and maybe we have to find new ways to grow more stuff on more land. And, oh, gosh, does everybody notice that Saudi Arabia and China are buying up basically 20% of the agricultural lands of third-world countries in Africa, which is what's true, by the way. So all these things are happening, but you need to know more than the headline. You need to know that crop prices are soaring because primary climate change. It's the huge, the biggest factor. Number two, the increase of the middle class in India and China eating more meat and there's seven times more grain required to produce a pound of protein than there is to eat the, the, the grain itself. Uh, you, you need to know that there's a growing global population. You need to know that we're taking food off the table because of, of foolish things like uh, corn ethanol. 
So there's a lot of things, these factors, and I won't list them all, I won't go into the way I did last month, but it means that as an investor, you can predict with some certainty, as we did, that you needed to be in uh, 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 an ETF of agricultural commodities. Now, um, Howard, I think you did some analysis of some of those things we've been saying, didn't you, on, on ETFs? Yes, or? yes, and I think we'll get to those during our lightning round. Okay, want to jump so, into that so now. listen for that, because we're going to give you some very interesting statistics, which you will find would have made you a lot of money had you followed what we said. Now, how do I tie these thoughts together? Very simply this. Now, and Howard's going to give you the, the, the end point with regard to oil. If you're going to listen to the news, great. If you're going to read something, great. But what I'm asking our listeners to do is I would like you to become the new class of critical thinkers. A critical thinker is somebody who actually listens for all the facts and doesn't, and this is a paraphrase of a hypothetical character, Sherlock Holmes, you don't create the theory and find the facts to fit them. You listen to the, the-, the facts and then you, you try to understand what the theory is behind the facts. If you do the former, you'll never get the true story. If you do the latter, you'll always understand what happened. Now, what I'd like you to do is become that new critical thinker. So when you see things happening, particularly if they're spoon-fed to you by the media, please tune into programs like this and listen behind that and then learn what you can do in your own situation so that your family will do better, so that you will do better in, the con- in, in these difficult times without getting caught in one camp or another. Howard, why don't you tell them your, 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 your famous theory of oil prices and why we're not pushing $90 a barrel? Well, one of the things I think people will notice if they ever do the statistical research, and it's not that hard to do, is if you plot the price of oil relative to itself over the past, let's say, 30 years, going back to the oil crises of the late 70s, maybe 35 years now, um, what you'll find is that the price of oil tends to rise every winter, every summer, and then... On alternate years only, and I stress this, alternate years only, it tends to drop in the early fall. Now, those alternate years happen to coincide with the American congressional election cycle and the presidential cycle on the uh, fourth year. And it's been a loose theory of mine that oil is not simply a supply and demand commodity, but that one that appears to be manipulated by the oil industry so as to create profits whenever they can and that when there's a lot of political discourse, to make sure that oil is never an issue during any election campaign or the price of oil. And a classic example of this was 2008. In June, July of 2008, just as we're getting into the presidential election season and before the economic crash occurred, oil was selling at close to $150 a barrel. At the pump, it was about $4.70 a gallon in the United States. After the crash, actually, uh, as the crash is beginning, oil had already begun to drop. By late August, which is a little bit earlier than usual, oil was down to $30 a barrel. Uh, That's a, what, 500%, 80% decrease um, from 150 down to 30. And if you ask people, and I've said this before on the show, if you ask people how much they think worldwide oil consumption dropped because of the, the economic crisis, People would say, oh, 100%, 200%, 300%, 50%, whatever. They threw out really large numbers. In fact, the matter, the decrease in consumption was only 3%. At 3%, a $150 barrel of oil would have dropped 4 to $5, and that's it. Uh, instead of being 145 it was 30 Oil at the pump was would have gone from 470 to maybe 450 or so. Instead, it dropped to $1.70. 
This was all before the election campaign. What it did is it prevented oil from ever being a topic of discussion during one of our most contentious presidential election seasons uh, in history. Um, This year, it's roughly similar. We had a big, giant oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, as you all know, in the spring that lingered into summer. And oil prices, which traditionally rise each summer on the excuse of its summer driving season, people are driving more, didn't go up at all. It stayed low. Um, And why? Again, so that you had one really negative issue about oil. The industry certainly did not want to compound that by adding a secondary story there about high prices. It dropped. Immediately after the 2010 election, the Saudis announced that they were more comfortable with oil around $90 a barrel. At that point, oil had been trading around 70 for the better part of a year. Almost immediately, it started jumping up to the high 80s. It touched 90, a little above, a little below. It's still floating around that mark. It has nothing to do with additional consumption. I think Ronaldo pointed out to me earlier this morning that oil consumption is actually down a little bit. Nonetheless, there were AP wire stories that floated out to the media uh, and the AP gets their source from different petroleum institutes and so forth that put out their press releases, that oil is expected to go up. And why? The same two canards. Oh, it's home heating season, prices go up in the winter, and we're expecting more driving this summer. Therefore, in the recovering economy, prices will go up. So they're already presetting the stage for this rise. And which, that, which, which, that's the point, which is that you get a headline, and people tend to believe it. And what I'm asking people in our audience to do, for their own best interest, and, be, and, and to be that part of that 15% that Margaret Mead says when it switches, the society switches, we've got to be the people that help pull everybody else behind us through this mess. So when you see a headline, which has been planted by an oil company, look behind the headline. In fact, as I said to Howard, he just repeated, global oil demand is down year over year, and the price is up by 20% a barrel, and growing higher. Why? Because... Saudi Arabia said it would get the $90 a barrel, and magically it did. Now, why? Because they control the price of oil. Everybody knows that. But people don't look behind those forecasts. I pick, I read something, which I recommend, by the way. You can set it as your browser on your, on your computer uh, as your default page. I have the Financial Times of London. There's a U.S. edition. I find it's a far superior newspaper to the Wall Street Journal, which I read religiously for the first 45 years of my professional, first 40 years of my professional career. I just want to say about the Wall Street Journal. Very interesting major comment on a major issue of municipal bonds, which we might touch on later. A short while ago, the New York Times, I mean, I'm sorry, the Wall Street Journal came up with a front page headline that because of a flooding of the market of these Build America bonds, which are partially supported by the federal government, that there was going to be a surplus of muni bonds and it sent shockwaves through the whole muni bond industry. The story was completely wrong. The Build America bonds that states like California were issuing were not in addition to the normal regular run of creating bond issues, but were in place of. Therefore, the supply was not being inflated, um, but yet the markets all jumped on that news and it sent ripples through the market. So one of the things I want to stress here, too, is not only do you have to be able to read between the lines, you also have to read the headlines as they are because that does that information, whether right or wrong, does create reactions in the market that you need to be conscious of, right. as and well as and, 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 and I just wanna, I'm sorry, you finished? I'm sorry. No, I'm done. Go ahead. Yeah. So, so let me read to you the lead headline in the Financial Times of London, the lead headline. Now listen to these words carefully. Forecast deepen fears of food crisis. Now that's intended to panic you. Whoever wrote that wasn't being very thoughtful. 
what you heard on this show a month ago was thoughtful, was analytical. It had information. It had facts behind it. It didn't, wasn't my opinion. I wasn't trying to fan your flames. I was telling you what I was doing to invest for myself and my family, which was working out quite well. Now, these headlines, forecast deep in fears of food crisis, makes the, the investment I made in ETFs and in, in food commodities all the more economically viable. I'm already up about 30-some percent in a few months. So I'm making lots of money doing this. I'm happy that they are basically feeding into what I think is important. But at the end of the day, those headlines are inherently misleading. Now, they may be right, even a stop clock is right twice a day. They may be right in the sense that there is a food crisis. There is. But telling you this, that creating this panic effect is not helpful to you because then you will make the investment or not for the wrong reason, and you won't know when to buy, you won't know when to sell. And therefore, you'll get caught, which is what they want, like a bunch of lemmings. And what Wall Street wants you to do is they want you to follow them when they're going up so they can sell before you get there, and they want to I mean, they, so they can buy before you get there and sell it to you at a profit, and they want you to follow when it's going down so they can sell it to you for more than they paid for. It's, it's, it's a manipulation. Wall Street is the greatest, largest casino in the world, and the only difference is you have better odds in Las Vegas than you do have in Wall Street. And this show not only equalizes the odds, what we're going to do, and we do every month, is we tell you how to beat them at their own game. And that's what's critical. And that's why I call it the skill of critical thinking. So let's segue. Let's segue into what happened with the lame duck session. The lame duck session created an enormous change of the status of the U.S. economy and therefore the global economy. Right. Why? Well, before you ju jump in, let me just remind our listeners that if they'd like to place a question, to please call us at area code 347-989-8946 and hit the number one key. I will see that you have on my screen a raised hand wondering to ask a question, wanting to ask a question, and I will cue you in at the appropriate time. Okay, Ronaldo, let's go back to the question then. So we're going to segue into what happened in the lame duck session. So what happened was an amazing, no one, myself included, could have or did predict what would have happened. One assumed everyone did the lame duck session would be at complete loggerheads as we thought it would be, and we were wrong. I must take my hat off to the political skills of the president. I, I, I think it's stunning what he did. <clears throat> what he did, and I know it's not proper or with liberals, but I want people to hear this. What he did was he took a hit really fast on the tax bill because he calculated quickly that of the potentially $900 billion in tax for benefits, about $160 billion was foolish, meaning there was no reason to give a tax break to continue, to continue the Bush tax cut for the upper 2%. It won't help the economy. Uh, it just drives us further into the deficit column. It's absolutely crazy to do that. And you've heard me say on this show, you've heard Paul Krugman say it many times in the New York Times. You've heard Joseph Stiglitz say it uh, in his books and articles. Right now what we need to do is we need to focus on things that stimulate the economy and raising taxes as Ronald Reagan did, which is what generated the great Reagan years of the economics. The great Clinton years happened after he raised taxes. You can't have a budget that's as badly out of whack as ours. Does that mean we can't cut expenses? Absolutely can and must. I think the, I mean, you've heard people have heard me for years rail against the agricultural subsidies in this country. People have heard me rail against the subsidies for big oil, which are an astronomical. People don't realize globally there's over 120% more annual subsidies to fossil fuel than there are all to, our, to all renewables combined. If you want the actual statistics, we'll get them for you. That's amazing. That's amazing. It would be $547 billion globally 
in fossil fuel subsidies and around $44 billion of total renewable energy subsidies. So you've got to realize we are in a situation here where if we, the people, don't get smart, we aren't going to be successful. What happened in the lame duck session was Obama realized if he took the hit quickly, the best deal he could, $160 billion was absolutely foolish money keeping the Bush tax cuts in place for people that didn't need them, wouldn't stimulate the economy, and it was basically a present, a gift to the upper 2% who control so much of the wealth of this country and therefore the world. However, he knew the balance of that $900 billion, roughly $640 billion, $740 billion, that's $740 billion, which is almost the size of the entire stimulus bill, by the way, $740 billion. That was going to stimulate the economy this year. And he put it in places where it would do the most stimulative good. So the reduction, for example, from 6.5% to 4.5%, which, which came about in the um, payroll withholding. When I want to, say, you want to clarify exactly what that reduction is and who it impacts so that everyone understands exactly where we're going with this. Okay. So the, what happened is that the, the IRS, uh, well, it, it, there's, a, the, there's the disability section of your payroll withholding. Uh, the average American pays 6 7% basically, and the employer has to pay the same thing. If you're self-employed, you pay both sides of it or 15%. What happened was we lowered that by, by two full percentage points so that everybody's paycheck who works for a living in America was reduced by 2% of their tax that came out of their pocket that day. So if you've received your first paycheck of the year and you have it, it's coming in a couple of days, that paycheck will be 2% larger, which means money directly into your pocket, which you didn't have. That's extremely stimulative because the people who rely on that 2% tend to be Johnny Paycheck, Johnny Lunch Bucket. And, 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 and Susie Teacher, Susie Fireman. So these are people who are spending everything they get just to keep their head above water because they have too much debt. They're, they're, the wealth effect is over from their house. They're trying to stay in there. They're trying to keep their mortgage from going to foreclosure. They're scrambling to keep the kids in college. They're scrambling to keep food on the table. You give them 2 3 4% anywhere, and that's going to be going right back into the economy of spending with the multiplier effect you've heard me speak about more often. And if please... Uh, maybe, Howard, can we schedule one show where for five or ten minutes we just describe the multiplier effect? People need to know how that works. I think that's an excellent idea. Also, the concept of being a contrarian when you're investing. I think that may be another important idea to add to sure. that mix. Let's do that. So as part of our financial literacy section, let's do that. So the point of the lame duck session is we got a $640 billion stimulus bill through. I'm going to touch on one small benefit to small business that happened that was really huge. But... Um, the idea is to look at that package, and he said, okay, got that done, best I could do. The liberals were upset because they, you know, because they said it's crazy, why would we be giving money to the rich? And the answer is, it was extortion, and you pay it. The guy holds you up with a gun to your head, you don't try and challenge him, you just pay him and give him your wallet. That's what happened, it's that simple, it was that crude, but at the end of the day, in giving him the wallet for $160 billion, we got $740 billion back of stimulus. Now, that stimulus is going to have an enormous effect on the economy. You've already seen they recalculated the job losses. It turns out we were in error the last few months before the election, and it was actually less unemployment than we thought. The actual unemployment rate dropped from uh, almost 10% down to 9.4. You will continue to see small drops in it. Why are they small drops? Because county and municipal governments, which we've reported on this program for months now, are laying so many people off that the private sector, which keeps hiring more people, you keep hearing, oh, gee, nobody's hiring the private sector because they're waiting for tax certainty. That's not true. That's a lie. That's an absolute bald-faced lie. We have added jobs in the private sector every month for the last 14 months. What happens is if the, if the states and the counties are firing people faster than the private sector can hire them, then you have a, a negative job number. 
So if we, if we could help these states, and we're going to have to, and those of you who have not read my article on trickle-up economics, which came out several years ago, I urge you to do so. You can get a copy from the Academy. It's free. And in there I point out that we need to create some financial mechanism so that the states don't face extreme conditions financially, which is what they're facing now. Now, at the, and if you didn't hear about it, the new governor of California, Governor Brown, who most people would call a liberal, produced the most draconian budget in the history of the state with a view towards balancing the budget in, in, in the first term of his office. That's astounding because what, to do it, he has to hit his labor union buddies hard. And he had to raise taxes, which you have to do. So you can't just cut spending alone. You have to raise taxes, too. And that's what this government is trying to do. That's what this country is going to have to do. What else happened in the lame duck session? We got don't ask, don't tell done. Why is that important? Because it was an enormous rift in the, in the civic dialogue that was keeping us from focusing on the issues that really mattered to everybody. And it was a test of whether or not we could become a humane society again. We needed to pass that test, and we did. Here's another one even more important, I think. I believe that what happened in the lame duck session will will go down for a variety of reasons as having been a coming together of pragmatism in the face of a very chaotic rhetoric. So you got a tax bill, you got don't ask, don't tell, and the big one, you got the START Treaty approved. Folks, you have to realize that when the five former, all five former living Republican secretaries of state came out with Senator Dick Luger, who was very brave for doing it, the head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for the Republicans, and said, this is essential to renew. Without this, we currently have no monitoring of Russian nuclear sites. Without this, we have a free-for-all with nuclear missiles and a, a nuclear um, uh, flow of nuclear trade, meaning the, the underlying uh, enriched uranium, that goes global at a time when we're trying to put the genie back in the bottle with global terrorism. So that we got all that done because Obama realized if he took the hit fast on taxes, he couldn't improve it much more. Fighting to the last guy died kind of thing, fighting, to the last, to, fighting like a dog for the last bone in the heap, would have left him with no time to do don't ask, don't tell, and no time to approve the START Treaty. His judgment was absolutely correct. Now let's go to the next thing that's on our list. And that before, is, we do that, before we do that, Renault, let me throw in one question for you here that's come sure. up. Um, is the effect of this stimulus from the lame duck session, along with the prior things that have been uh, put into place, whether it's QE2, the stimulus bill itself, so on, is that going to be enough to get us out of this recession? Whatever well, you're calling it technically, is it enough to get the economy moving in the right direction again? Well, first of all, we're, the recession ended quite a while ago, Howard. So I'm we're talking out. about the formal term but I'm talking about the impact and the way that most people feel about this economy well, you know, on a personal level. You know, see, I think, I think the way people perceive it is by looking at the unemployment rate, not by looking at economic activity. So let me answer it in both contexts. Number one, uh, what I would have assumed would have been about a 2.2%, 2.3% growth in economic activity this year. I'm now assuming it's going to be three per, north of 3%. It'll be over 3%. So we're going to pick up lots, lots of economic growth. When you, when, when you raise almost a point or more, the uh, U.S. GDP, you're talking about a big, big number. Uh, you know, you're talking many, many billions. Number two, um, when you look at it in terms of unemployment, the 9.4% I think has a shot, depending on what happens at the state level, of getting down to 9% or less. It certainly should hit 9 by the end of the year, and I believe it's possible by the end of the year it could be below 9, 8.9 or whatever. Now, that's completely a function 
of, not completely, but heavily determined by what happens in the states. You have 17 more states that now have Republican governors, and they're all talking about slashing payrolls, and so you're going to have a lot more people getting let go. I think it's tragic because we're at a time right now when we need to repair our bridges, we need to repair our highways, we need to have better teachers in the classroom, we need to have, because we're, we're sinking globally in terms of our education ranking and our competitiveness. Uh, we need more policemen, we need more firemen, we need more police watching out for terrorists, not fewer. Uh, we need more firemen because we're having more natural disasters, and they're not natural, they're man-made, but we call them natural disasters. So for all of these reasons, we need to be investing, and I use the word appropriately, we need to be investing in society, not cutting back our, par our teachers, our firemen, our policemen, our civil defense people on our response capability for disasters. So we, we, we are going to have the growth of economic activity if the states can just refrain from laying so many people off and the cities can start to rebalance their budget, which means tax increases. And we should be talking about whether that's a VAT or value-added tax nationally, whether it's going to be, as in some states, increases in sales taxes, or other mechanisms. And, and my favorite one, Howard, and I, I don't know when people are going to wake up and smell the coffee, we've got to start taxing carbon. If we tax carbon, we will get we will, we will re reduce or eliminate our dependence on foreign oil completely. We'll reduce the negative effect of buying all that oil every day in our balance of payments. We'll immediately become economically more strong. We'll immediately reduce the deficit. I mean, it's just huge what happens when you start taxing carbon. And for some reason, that the reason being the political influence that entrenched carbon forces, oil companies primarily and coal companies have, that are causing the American public to vote constantly against their own self-interest. These people are absolutely the robber barons of the, of the 19th century times 10 living with us today. Well, let so me ask you, the devils have a good question here on that issue of that. The, the line that you hear most often is that if we impose things like a carbon tax or anything else to impose green restrictions, that it's a job killer. That's completely What's, what's your response to that? It, it, well, first of all, it's a lie. I mean, I'm not going to call it false. It is a blatant lie. No one, and I'm going to stress the word no one, who impartially looks at the information would ever say that. So if you hear that, someone's either got an agenda to put a lie like that out, they're paid to, or... They're not willing to be critically thinking about the facts. They're not willing to dig out the facts and find out. In, the facts are that creating the green economy is the number one maximum way you could stimulate the U.S. economy today. It is not a job killer. It is a job creator. It does not reduce business activity. It will cause it to generate enormous growth. Look, this is a country that was built on invention and innovation. And we've begun to believe a lie that we can't innovate ourselves into the 21st century because somehow we're not capable of creating green, renewable energy resources. I just said at the beginning of the show, $547 billion of subsidies for coal and oil, $44 billion subsidies for renewable energy. So who's getting, who's getting bought off here? Now, why would we be subsidizing oil companies with astronomical, and I would argue, egregious profits? We should be taxing excess oil profits, not giving them additional subsidies. Exxon doesn't need your, your tax dollars. They should be putting more tax dollars in. Do you know what the effective rate of tax Exxon pays is? It's less than you pay. And I don't care what you pay because you can't be paying as low as Exxon. So at the end of the day, what we have to do is we have got to get logical. We've got to get smart. And in the meantime, everybody who listens to this show, please get your friends and relatives to listen and your neighbors. We're going to start doing all the things that are smart. And guess what happens? Business will watch us. Business will understand that we've got some people out there that are actually watching where the little ball is bouncing, and we will start to change the way business 
feeds information to us, and they'll start to respect us more because they'll realize we're not so busy listening to Happy Talk TV, which is disguised as news. We're actually trying to make our lives work day by day. So let's okay, thank let, you, let's, for that. You, you're welcome. Let me, it's a complete lie. It's it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable to me that people get away with saying that stuff. It's like, wait a minute, where do you get that crap? And 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 if people, and, and, and forgive me for the. Um, What's the word? The energy and the enthusiasm of my rhetoric here. I'm, I'm a very respectful person. I, I respect everybody, and I give everybody the right to have their own opinion. But, you know, the fact that you think the world is flat doesn't make it a debate. I know the world is round, and if you don't, you know what? I have compassion. I have empathy. But at the end of the day, it doesn't bother me because that's not even a conversation for me. If you think climate change isn't real, you haven't read what happened to over a third of the entire population of the country of Australia. You haven't heard what happened to the third largest city of Australia, Brisbane alone, which is underwater, completely closed down. Virtually every street is underwater. I mean, we're talking you know, 25 million Pakistanis flooded out. We're talking about enormous climate change activities happening, and the listeners of this show have to know the implications of that. You notice I said a while ago, the implications on crops are not to ever be ignored. They're huge. So if you start looking and thinking about what it is you really need to know for your own survival, for your own protection, for your own best interests, all of a sudden the answers get a lot easier. But to get them, you've got to do a little work. You've got to find shows like this to listen to. You've got to be able to discuss this with your neighbors. You've got to call in with your questions, by the way, so that you can put me on the spot with really specific things that matter to you that you really want to know. And by the way, um, I just want to make a small commercial announcement. What I do for a number of you, and I want to keep doing, is the World Business Academy has a service where I'll analyze for you your individual portfolio, uh, your individual situation. I'll give you my best thinking about it, and I'll send you back to your broker or whoever you deal with. I don't make any transactions. The Academy charges a fee for that, which the Academy keeps. I don't. We have some people who come to me once a quarter, and they rebalance, and we have other people who do it once a year, we're happy to do that. It's part of our service as the Brill Business Academy. You, you have to be a member, but that's very inexpensive. So you join the academy, and then you pay a, a slight fee, and we can do that for you until the cows come home. So I wanted to just put that announcement in because I'm available to help you one-on-one -on -one in the context of your own individual portfolio, but on this show you get it for free. So please call in with your questions, and the more specific, the better. But if you're embarrassed or you want something that's really unique to you and you want to keep it private, great. Give us a call, set an appointment. You've all got the number. You know how to find us, worldbusiness.org. On that note, Ronaldo, let me uh, state our reminder about calling in uh, for the show. Again, that's area code 347-989-8946, and hit the number one key if you'd like to raise a question. At this point, I'd like to switch over to our lightning round which is a series of quick economic insights and comments on major asset classes such as bonds, the dollar, energy, and real estate with, I'm sorry, with particular emphasis on ideas that you can use yourself. This month, we're going to be looking at the recent rise, as we mentioned earlier, in the price of food, oil, and other commodities, as well as some of our past predictions for them. Ronaldo, you want to start there? Yeah, and I'm going to give a, I want to do a tip of the hat to one of the, our Academy fellows for many years, Lester Brown. Most of you are familiar with his works plan, uh, uh, plan B 2.0, Plan B 3.0, Plan B 4.0. His new book, which just came out, uh, World on the Edge, How to Prevent Environmental and Economic Collapse, just came out. By the way, you can get a free copy of that uh, online. 
if you want, you can look it up how to get it. And if not, you can contact the Academy. We'll tell you how to get a free copy of it. And I want to acknowledge the fact that uh, Lester is talking now in this new book about something we've talked about, which has direct investment applications, and that's the lack of potable water, both for drinking and, and also for industrial uses, and the stress on our global water systems. And one of the things that we've urged in the past is start looking into water as an investment. There are many ways to do that. Uh, I'm going to touch on a few right now. But one of the ways I increasingly like is desalinization. It's going to become mandatory. It's not whether we want to do it or not. People say, oh, well, they won't really, won't really get that big because it requires so much energy. Two things to observe, first of all, folks. Number one, not all systems do. In other words, the, the efficiency of desalinization has dramatically increased over the last three, four years. And because more and more countries and people are buying it, those plants are getting more efficient. Number two, the, uh, you, you, you're gonna, you can see this. There, there is a way to do this with renewable energy. There's a way to run, run desalinization plants using windmills, geothermal, and other 100% green renewable energy sources. More about that later. But for right now, I would target you on desalinization. Those companies that have the advanced equipment, those companies are the most energy efficient, those companies that are established in that field will continue to grow and prosper. They tend to be international in scope. That's an area, a sector I really like. Another sector I like is I like um, municipal bonds by people like, for example, Los Angeles Department of Water and Power that are what are called revenue bonds as opposed to general obligation bonds. You've heard me talk about this before. So if you want a municipal bond because you don't want a taxable income, you want a decent yield in a 1% world, you want to get a 2 3 4% or 5% yield, you get a DWP, LADWP bond, for example, and you buy that because it's, it, it's, as long as people drink water in Los Angeles, those bonds will be paid for. We can assume in your lifetime, whatever age you are as a listener, people will be wanting to drink water in Los Angeles. Therefore, those bonds will get retired safely. So that, that's another way you can invest in water. Another way to invest in water is there are a couple of companies, there's a half a dozen globally, that are really large uh, players in, in owning water supplies. Some of them have political liabilities. Uh, we've seen that in Latin America a little bit. So you have to be careful which company you pick. But basically there are a number of companies out there right now who are, are running municipal water systems or they're running desalinization water systems or they're running um, privately owned but contracted out water systems. These companies, there's a French company, there's a couple of U.S. companies, very large, relatively stable, uh, their upside income is restricted by how much they can charge for the water, but there's two reasons why over time that won't be a problem. Number one, water is getting to be scarcer and scarcer, so the, the, the bargaining power is on their side, not the one who's drinking the water and not the city that wants to buy it. Number two, there are more customers now for the water than they can find. Number three, the political uh, battle over water is so badly distorted that until politics changes in this country and we change the way we use water, you will see a continuing deterioration of groundwater supplies. You will see a continuing deterioration of the quality of water. I mean, just, what, three weeks ago, they came up with the list with the worst water in America to drink. The city of Honolulu was first on the list. Uh, and there's reasons for it. There are very good reasons I'd be happy to share with you. But at the end of the day, that was a very long list of 50 cities, and you wouldn't want to drink water in any one of them out of the tap, and yet everybody does every day and doesn't think about it. So there's lots of reasons why water is a sector where I want you to be starting to watch and lots of ways to watch it. Um, oil is going to continue to go up. $90 a barrel is not the end because the price of oil, is, as Howard eloquently states, is basically in the hands of a very few companies who manage that price. And they believe, those companies believe in those countries, so 
Saudi Arabia primarily, but there are others. Uh, they believe that we're capable of sustaining somewhere around $100 a barrel. They just haven't announced it to you yet. And after we get to 100, they'll say you're capable of getting to 120. What's the significance? We're now in an inflationary spiral, folks. In case you didn't notice, the worries about deflation, which we on this show have been debunking for six to eight months, are, I don't think it's even a debate anymore. Deflation is not the issue for America or for the world. It's inflation on a whole bunch of late bases. And I want to just throw that out there as, in a lightning round context, Howard, if you want to start figuring out what to do to protect yourself, start thinking that inflation is going to be a bigger force for yourself in the U.S. Globally, less so, but because the U.S. is such a big chunk of it, it'll probably also happen uh, at a global level. But right now, just talking about the U.S. for countries like Denmark, Sweden, and a few others I could name, less of a challenge uh, in the immediate future. Um, I guess the other lightning round ones we want to talk about, the price of homes, uh, an interesting statistic. The price of a home today is now, if you take in and factor in that uh, mortgages were at about 8% in 1996, you can get them for about 4.25% today. So even with an 8% mortgage rate, 4.25% being the lowest it's been in decades, um, when you average together the average price of a house, which has fallen so much, and you take it at 8% money instead of 4%, it turns out that the price of buying a home today is about what it was in 1996. Now, the price of a loaf of bread is nowhere near where it was in 1996. Because you've got to remember, 1996 was a whole long time ago. Okay, We're talking 15, 16 years ago. And for it to be the same price as it was 16 years ago, do you remember what bread was 16 years ago? Price of milk 16 years ago? So clearly the price of housing in America is a thing that will probably stabilize more and more with each month that we go through, provided that the federal government starts to enforce what it's already said it's going to do and hasn't done well, which is to reform the mortgage foreclosure process, to hold lenders accountable. And by the way, there was a great decision in, in a couple of states recently on that. It looks like Bank of America, which by the way, I'd stay out of Bank of America stock if I were you in Citigroup as well, and probably Wells. I've been talking about this for a while. There's a huge undisclosed liability on their balance sheets because I don't think all those foreclosures that they did are going to withstand the scrutiny that they deserve. And in some states, particularly Massachusetts, it's already come home to haunt them. And we're talking tens of billions of dollars of liability. So watch for that one. Uh, next, um, we talked about commodities. I just want to reiterate what I said last month. I don't invest in oil. It's going to go up in price. So if you believe in it for moral reasons, go ahead and do it. But I do like to invest in uh, grain commodities, agricultural commodities. I listed them in the prior shows. Uh, we had, we talked about corn, soybeans, wheat, bulgur, uh, et cetera, uh, those, and cereal grain crops. Those are going to continue to rise in value over time. The scarcity will continue to pinch, even if the U.S. economy doesn't do well. Plus, and here's a big advantage, when you assume that the U.S. dollar will go down over time, Right now, there's a little flip going on between the dollar and the euro, I'll explain. But when you assume that the dollar will go down, which it will in the next few years, that means that those prices of those commodities will go up inversely. So it's a commodity purchasing is actually a hedge against dollar deflation at a time when the dollar will continue to weaken. Now, why will the dollar deflate when the economy doesn't deflate? Because we're printing too many dollars. Simple as that. And we're not constraining ourselves in any kind of appropriate way in terms of our budget. So, Howard, when I, I just want to detour here for a second. We talked about the commodities. Throw out some of those statistics we looked at this morning before going on air, which I thought were fascinating about commodities. 
Right. Absolutely. Let me just give a couple of caveats first that as a registered broker, a few things I do have to mention. First, that when we talk about performance, one should not consider past performance a predictor of future results. Two, I do hold some of these assets that we are talking about in accounts for various clients. That is neither a recommendation to buy or to sell these. And that in, you must know that in this show, I am not making any specific recommendations to you as an individual to buy or sell any of these items. That being said, I'm going to take a look, for example, at some of these exchange-traded funds, these in, index options that track the price of agricultural products, commodities products, and to a certain extent, oil. And as an example, there's one that's known as a DBA, that's its trade symbol, which is a measure of agricultural prices. To give you a notion, uh, the Academy recommended buying ag prices, which this index tracks, in 2009. And at that time, the price averaged around $26.15 a share. Now that's up to $32 a share. That's a 22% increase in about a year and a half time. Yeah, but, but Howard, I just want to focus people. And that 22% increase, folks, happened when the rest of the economy was going to hell in a handbasket. Remember? Exactly. exactly. So at a time right. when the rest of the economy collapsed, we were getting 22% return. Because and the, these, these indexes, by the way, are not based on American prices. They're international. Uh, you so you're be. getting a, a worldwide perspective on these things. Which you need a to be because grains are an international commodity, Howard. Exactly. Very Right. Now, uh, there's a similar index for commodities in general, which is essentially minerals, mining goods, so forth, uh, raw materials, as well as energy and that's known as the DBC. That uh, was trading back in 08 at around 23.15. We recommended it buying it when it dipped in 09 to about 22. It's now at 27.50 approximately, and that's, again, approximately a 25% increase in value over that same time, at the same time that the U.S. economy was stagnating. No, I just want to go back. Well, <laughs> investments were collapsing. 09, right. it was... Well, yeah. But I want to go back and mention something, too. Before the crash, the Ag Index, which is now at $32, was actually trading at thirty-seven seventy-five. So these things do have a cyclical nature themselves of going up and down, and any buyer of these needs to be aware of the full ramifications and pictures of what these things can do. The Commodities Index was thirty-six twenty-five. Before you get there, Howard, just to let you finish mm -hmm. up, I just want to underscore that for folks. So when I said at the beginning of the show, it's about critical thinking, about getting the information. Because of the cyclicality of commodities, when you go talk to your broker, remember, we I'm not a broker. I don't make any money doing this. I don't make recommendations so that somebody can buy or sell things through me. That's not what we're doing here. Neither is Howard. This is general information. If you don't, if you go to your broker dealer and he says, "Oh, commodities go up, they go money down," blah, 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 blah. It's, it's just like it's, you got to pick it. It's like it's for sophisticated investors. That's not true. Commodities and everything else goes in cycles, but the question is: the cycle rising or the cycle falling, and when to jump into the cycle, when to jump out of the cycle. That's critical thinking. That's getting the information you need. So what Howard's doing is he's pinning for you when we made recommendations, which we don't try to pick it at the very bottom of the cycle. We don't try to pick it at the top of the cycle. A very wise man once told me. Bulls make money, bears make money, pigs get slaughtered. We're not greedy, but we're trying to understand what fundamentals change these numbers so that we can pass it on to you and benefit. Now, Howard's got one more before he gives you that one. I just want to tell you the DBC, uh, the DBC which you just talked about, does include metals. And in the last show I explained to you, I can make an argument in declining economic activity that metals won't do as well. And I specifically picked the example of copper last month, I believe. Now that the U.S. economy is going to get an extra spurt of growth because of the, of the year-end lame duck session and what Obama did, it looks to me 
like the minerals would continue to go up from the date that that was known, and that's what's happened. So from the show we did last month where I said be careful because copper could be a little weak because it's a domestic industrial product that China uses a lot. We do too. Others do. Now it looks like minerals will go up, but I think a safer bet that you know for sure you can go to sleep every night on is the grains themselves. So if you want the grains, you'll probably get less of an upward tick than you would if you bought grains, metals, and oil. But you'll do better over the long term, I think, and you'll sleep safer at night with the grains. That said, go ahead and give them the DVO. Right. Let me go review those numbers again just to be clear. The the commodities index, the DVC, was 36.25 before the crash in the spring of 2008, uh, just two and a half years ago. Um, it fell as low as 23.15. Because of the metals uh, issue. Actually, I'm sorry, it fell at by November of that same year. So that was a huge drop in a relatively short period of time from the spring to the fall. And then it fell a little bit further. In 2009, it was only 22 a share, and now it's up 27.50, which from the time that we recommended buying it around 22, it's a 25% increase in the, in the value of that area. Let me jump to oil just a little bit. Again, as a punctuation mark when we talked about earlier, before the crash, the DBO, the oil index, was trading around 55. It fell to 20, which is almost a two-thirds drop. And now it's back up at 28%, which is a 40% increase um, from that low. So these things, again, very volatile. And the news you need to understand more often than not is not what you're going to hear on CNBC, but rather the political news of what's happening in the world in general, where world economies are going, where who's making deals with who, relative to all of these different types of assets, whether there is famine, whether there is shortage, whether there are hurricanes. All this information has an impact on these types of issues. And you really need to be, as Ronaldo said, reading between the lines, looking carefully, gathering all the information before you make any kind of individual move yourself. And doing your homework. And, and I, one of the two other points we'll make real quickly. Number one, when you see a storm that wipes out 25 million Pakistanis or you see one that wipes out a third of Australia – I don't want you to think that's a problem over there. I want you to get that it's coming here, too. Okay? In other words, it, we, we have it here in terms of, of, of flooding. We've had these weird snowstorms that have disrupted the economy on the East Coast twice now. I mean, just the, the last six weeks alone. There's all sorts of weather patterns that are disturbed. They're going to continue to be disturbed. <coughs> Australia's looking at a possible cyclone today, by the way. Um, you're seeing, you, you saw <coughs> literally a, a twister touch down and destroy a ton of homes. I believe it was Arkansas in the month of, of uh, January or late December, which is unheard of. That's winter. That can't happen theoretically, but it did and will happen again. So don't think about these odd events as happening out there. These have a direct impact on you. Second point, go do your homework. You're not going to make money protecting your investments. You're not going to do better economically for yourself. You're not going to do better, have better uh, community to live in, state, region, or country, if you don't put in the work. Okay, This is not fairy tale time. This is reality time. That's what the great lesson of 0809 is. Wake up and smell the coffee. It's like it's time to wake up, it's time to be serious. Ronaldo, uh, we have two other brief topics we wanted to touch on today and we've got a little less than uh, 10 minutes remaining in the show. We will run over if necessary and if people want to hang on there. Um, but those are the appointment of Bill Daly as uh, Obama's chief of staff and also you did want to talk about a, a provision in a tax code that does help small businesses. Uh, okay, where would let's, you like get, to begin? let's do that one first. It's called QSBS. And what it is, it's a qualified stock, small business stock. Qualified stock, small business stock. 
the short version, and folks uh, you need to talk to your own investment advisor or tax accountant or tax attorney, but basically uh, it was extended at the last minute in the Tax Act so that until December 31, 2011, if you buy stock in a small business, defined as $50 million in assets or less, uh, and then there's certain other requirements, um, then you can actually take hold that stock for five years and have an enormous amount, if not all, of your capital gains be totally tax-free. Enormous amount being defined as not less than 10 times the increase in your stock value would be free of capital gains. And conceivably, all of it would be free of capital gains. So it's an enormous stock benefit to you as a holder of stock in a small QSBS company. I myself, in my private hat at the Shangri-La Group, just launched an offering for my newest company this week, and we made a point of making sure it was QSBS qualified for that reason. Uh, again, see for your own tax advisor. There are certain specifics and limitations. There's an alternative minimum tax issue you need to comprehend. But that, by the way, also I forgot to mention, the AMT did get patched again this year, Howard, at the last instant. So AMT was inflation indexed again through 2011. That's a good thing. So if you're looking at a stock to buy in a small business, this is, you couldn't have a better time because now you can do it with no capital gains tax if people want more information on that. Uh, I know I just did it, as I said, with my new company, FameWizard.com. FameWizard, uh, yeah, .com. So I'm, I'm really happy to um, talk to people about that individually, but it's a huge benefit for small business. So when you hear a small business guy saying he didn't get any breaks from the tax bill, that isn't true. Uh, there are a lot of breaks in there, but this one was the one that kind of slid under the radar. No one was watching. Uh, and as I said, the AMT has also been patched. That said, and again, we'll take. I'd love to take some questions. I don't hear people coming in with them, so let me just do Bill Daly and we'll end the show. Uh, a lot of liberals have taken exception with the appointment of Bill Daly, uh, and I don't like the term liberals. Let me call them progressives, whatever you want to call them, but you know what, it mean, what I mean. Uh, and they said, you know, this is a guy from Wall Street. This is a guy who did uh, eight, seven, eight years at J.P. Morgan, which is true. Uh, this is a guy who grew up as the son of, a, of the Chicago Sion and political leader Bill, uh, Richard Daly of, of, of Chicago, and his brother has been the mayor and still is until recently. All true. He was also the Commerce Secretary on Clinton. He's also had a distinguished record in both business and politics. Why am I excited about Bill Daly being uh, put in as Chief of Staff? Because I think that the White House desperately needed someone like Bill with his ability. I also think Bill's enough of a guy in terms of his background that when he's working for the president, he will be working for the president, not undermining the president. I think he will restore the credibility of this administration on Wall Street. What do I mean by that? What the administration is doing is actually good in the long term for Wall Street. It's sort of like they don't like it that they got castor oil from this administration, but in the end, it's going to cure them. Now, if you ever remember when you were kids, and I do, because I had castor oil when I was a kid, didn't particularly like tasting it, but it did the job. You know, We had these uh, remedies as children that weren't what we wanted, we didn't want to go to the doctor and get a shot, but it actually took care of us not getting sick or curing an illness we had in the case of antibiotics. So there's sometimes you have to do things that don't taste good or feel good at the moment, but you know it's for your own best interest. Bill Daly is going to be able to communicate that to Wall Street because, frankly, when Wall Street starts to think about what would happen if people like Obama weren't in the office, if someone like Sarah Palin was there or Glenn Beck or other people who are basically – representatives of a very small fringe of not more than 30%, probably 20% of the American population, it's core. <clears throat> when people think about the possibility of what legislation would be like if we literally didn't tax anybody, 
if we literally gutted all of our social services, if we literally removed the safety net, if we did all those things, the country would fall apart. This country only does well in the presence of a growing, vibrant middle class. The entire economic system of this country depends on it. I believe Bill Daley will help the president get there. I think this administration was not well served by uh, Rahm Emanuel, candidly. Nothing personal. I'm sure he meant well. But his style and what he did and how he led that political operation was not in the best interest of the president, the administration, or frankly the American people. And I think the American people made a judgment about that in November more than they did about Obama. So I'm glad that Daley's in the job. I think it's going to be a great step forward for the administration. I think it bodes well for um, helping Wall Street understand why what the president's doing is actually good for commerce, good for the economy. And I think it'll be a more um, kind of like civilized, open-door process, even if at times people don't like what they hear is going to happen. So that's it. I think we, can, we hit it all, Howard. Um, we're right there on the hour, I think. We're just about out of time. Any last-minute comments you'd like to make today? Uh, just this. I would hope that as people listen to this, and I know many of you listeners, the majority of our audience listens to this as MP3 files, which is great because it, we, we notice when you pick them up, and we're glad that you are because we really want you to hear it. If you hear something and it triggers a question for next month's show, please send us the question. We get a few in between. I'd love to get it. I'd love to have a dozen sitting here on my desk. I'd love you to give me such good questions. I got to go to the books and figure out the answers so I can't just come on the air and tell you things I've already discovered with the help of Madeline and our research staff and Howard. So please give me an opportunity to serve you more directly and more effectively. Challenge us with your questions and frankly even your comments. We welcome those as well. With that, I want to thank Howard for helping us again this month. I want to thank everybody listening. I want to thank those of you who are listening by remote at the MP3 file and for all of you who have supported the work of the Academy since 1986. Thanks very much and have a great day. Thank you, Ronaldo. And let me repeat, if you'd like to email a question in to the show um, for next month, the address used is jordana at worldbusiness.org. That's J-O-R-D-A-N-A at worldbusiness.org. Or you can go to the World Business Academy website and uh, reach us through that connection. I think it's uh, info that, at worldbusiness.org. Right. With that, I appreciate all of you listening and those of you who will listen in. And thanks again. We'll be back again next month. And as a reminder, it is the second Thursday of February, um, and we will be on the air at 11 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Thanks again, and have a great week. Bye-bye.